Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Psalm 2 this morning says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hopefully you've had a chance to sort of surface all of these deeply existential questions about prayer uh, in a span of 20, 25 seconds or so. Um, so, so we're, we're going to step into a season of prayer. I'm going to ask you as a church to pray uh, with me and uh, with one another. Uh, and as a, as a sort of step into this journey with us over these next few weeks, I, I want to acknowledge that we probably all have different relationships with prayer. And, and probably in our own lifetimes, ourselves, our, our relationship to prayer uh, probably sort of fluctuates. Um, and, and I'll just, you know, we could say a lot of things about it, but this morning I just want to sort of one aspect of it. I think sometimes prayer is awkward. And um, uh, I just, you know, I always feel that way, but sometimes I just want to maybe, uh, of the things we could settle on, acknowledge that sometimes prayer is awkward. And I think it's awkward for all kinds of reasons. Um, it was just interesting because, I, you know, I thought about throwing out all the statistics, you know, people are all the time taking surveys, you know, a large percentage of people pray, you know, whether they're religious or not, and all these kinds of things, that there is this, like, inclination to, to, to reach out for help, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a little awkward, and, and I, again, I think it's awkward for all kinds of reasons. One reason in particular that I would invite you to consider with me is distance. We've talked about distance a few times over the last uh, weeks as we sat with Luke's gospel. Uh, we talked about it Wednesday night that I think we underestimate the distance sometimes. Which is this season helps us remember there's distance between us and God. Uh, and sometimes we overestimate our ability to make up that distance and underestimate uh, the gap that is there. And that, that tension, I feel like, affects prayer for us. We, we feel distance, uh, I think, in a variety of ways. One, I think, is that way. God is holy, and we know when we look in the mirror, like, we know we are not. <laughs> like, we, we know us at our worst moments and at our best, and, and, and we know we, we perceive a distance there. There's tension there. But I think sometimes it's, it's maybe just more practical, like the distance of uh, the gap between the seen and the unseen, right? Like, when I, when I talk to you, Sam, you're there. I talk to you. Uh, but in prayer, you know, there's the awkwardness of like, who is there, right? It's unseen, the seen and the unseen, this, this experience of like, uh, you know, uh, I think for some it can create a, a bit of 
of tension. It can feel a little awkward. Uh, I, I, maybe another way we feel it, I think sometimes, I, I wasn't sure what the best words for this were, but I think there's distance between our sort of conviction, our, our confession of what, what, we, what we want to believe and know to be true, perhaps from Scripture, from our time, uh, our story of faith, what, there's this conviction that we carry, but also our experience, right? That, that we know God is good, that his goodness uh, is abundant, but, but we bring that into prayer and we also feel the distance, but man, sometimes life is not good. And, and what, what do I do with this sort of awkwardness? Um, again, I think we could, you could land on any number of expressions, any number of ways in which perhaps prayer is awkward or ways in which maybe you feel that tension. But uh, this, I think, is one to consider. I, I, I read recently uh, Eugene Peterson, writer, pastor, Perhaps most well-known, perhaps most, I stepped on the court, perhaps most well-known for the message translation, but has written just extensively about uh, life and faith. Uh, But he made the observation, and he asked the question this way, like, can there even be a conversation, right? He's thinking about prayer. Can there even be a conversation between a God who speaks the worlds into existence and our lives and we who use our words to order a second helping of potatoes, right? Right? Distance, right? Between a God who speaks worlds and and sort of the mundane, just like run-of-the-mill uses of speech that we carry. James in the New Testament picks up this tension that that there's this range, right? And and, and, and we feel this tension. And and I want to suggest to you this morning, again, we could have landed on any number of things, but as we step into this particular season, um, I, I want to suggest that the Psalms help us, help you and help me pray. I, I want to invite you with me to kind of lean on the Psalms uh, each week to guide us in, in prayer. We, during Advent, we, we sat with the songs of that particular season. We looked at Luke's gospel and he told us the story of Jesus and included in that story a variety of songs and pulled us into the story of God. Well, this season, I, I kind of want to do the same thing, uh, a season of confession, this Lenten season of dependence and an acknowledgement that we are dust, that we are sinful, that we are broken, that there is distance between us and God. It's, it's what it takes us to Easter, right, to, to Good Friday and Easter, that, that uh, the songs for this particular season, I, I want to suggest uh, we we can find some resonance in, in the Psalms, that they, they pull us deeply into dependence, to this confession that, that uh, though we want to be self-reliant, we, we uh, our lives, we are pulled into uh, a different story, a life of dependence. We, we saw it Wednesday night. We began with Psalm 130, that we are pulled into a dependence on a God whose habit is forgiveness. And I think when we start there, well, then maybe that helps us with the awkwardness of prayer. That when we pray, we approach a God whose habit, the psalmist told us, is forgiveness. And I think that changes the nature of the conversation. Well, these next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to look at some, some different psalms as well that I hope, I hope will help us. Today, we'll start at the beginning. Well, uh, we'll, start, we'll start near the beginning. We'll, we'll start with number two, uh, near the beginning, and we actually won't come to the beginning until we get to the end, right? So uh, just hang on, right? Here we go. Uh, we're going to start with Psalm 2, and this is what I want to do this morning. Just just kind of briefly walk through the psalm, consider what it says, uh, and then maybe consider um, the implication of what it says for how we might pray, 
So that's, that's where we're headed. So we'll start right at the beginning. Uh, again, so this psalm, the heart of the psalm, it makes a really striking claim. All right, if we're just going to summarize it, it's essentially something like in the face of terrifying threats, right? The world is raging. Nations are raging. In the midst of terrifying, in the face of terrifying threats, God creates and preserves order. That, that he establishes through his chosen one, the, the anointed one, the Messiah is the language here. His righteous leader. That's sort of the, the crux, that's the thrust of, of the psalm. But you see where it starts, nations raging, right? Why? 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 I shouldn't talk about it, but we have, we have tried every conceivable solution to, the, to this mic, so we're just going to have to, uh, you know, try something else. <laughs> um, uh, why do the nations rage? Right, uh, I think a prayer that, uh, given the last few weeks, has some particular resonance with our experience uh, of the world. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Right, There's this admission that immediately in this prayer we're pulled into the truth that the world is raging, that that that, that people are grasping for power. There's there there is ambition that is driving uh, systems in the world that uh, that are are broken, specifically, this psalm tells us, against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah, right? That, that specifically the world is raging against God's good work and order for the world. Rage on a geopolitical scale, the psalmist begins with, plotting and conspiring, leaders and systems setting themselves up Maybe it's not a space we think about often, but I, I certainly think it's a psalm that has resonance for uh, the moment that uh, we are in. Perhaps calls to mind headlines you have read and considered this week. And, and here, right from the get-go, the psalm pulls us into this experience of the world. Why do the nations rage, right? Nations raging. But then, then the psalmist moves into, and it's kind of broken into four stanzas here. In the second stanza of three verses, the nations are raging, but we find in this prayer that God is laughing right? God is, is laughing. He who sits in the heavens, the Lord, uh, the Lord holds them in derision, right? He laughs. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king uh, on Zion, my holy hill. Uh, again, so you can feel attention here, this distance. This is the experience of the world. It's broken. Uh, nations are raging. And here's an image of God uh, in laughter, I, I think it's pretty clear, right? Like, there is a bit of mockery here. Uh, the psalmist in this prayer exposing uh, the world, God looking at the world and all of its plotting and scheming, its strategies, its pomp, all of these things, right? Um, e- even sort of, we might consider the leaders of, of, of the time of the psalm, of Ramesses or Amurabi or Nebuchadnezzar, these like figures that we know from ancient history, uh, sort of wreaking their will on the world. And this picture that uh, while everyone sort of shivers in terror at the nations and all of their um, orchestrations in the world, God laughs. Laughter, again, a hint of mockery. But I wonder if there's also in this laughter a bit of, uh, I don't know, delight might be the wrong word. It's just the feeling of, of God looks at all of this activity and then there's a chuckle. Right, a, a, a chuckle of, of, of one who is unfazed and non-anxious, sure 
of uh, victory and his hold on, on the world. Right? That, that in this laughter from God is this assurance of, of his control, even in the midst of like all of this noise. Uh, I think it, it, it pulls us into, again, that distance that we talked about. Right? That even in the psalmist, you know, uh, in his day, Jerusalem was a modest town on an even more modest hill, a fledgling capital of a rather modest nation, barely noteworthy in the annals of history, particularly among the people who, you know, who, who were writing it. And yet, uh, God says of this people and this group uh, that he is holding all of this and his will is being worked through uh, his anointed one. Right, his laughter, we hear it here. The nations are raging, God is laughing. Then we move into the third stanza. The one whom he has chosen, his king, we hear him speak here. I will tell of the decree, the Lord God said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make all these raging nations your heritage, your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron, you'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the moment where the one whom God has chosen stands and addresses all of those raging nations. God's Messiah. God in this moment reveals, I know the, I know the world is out of control. We get this image of God sort of in control and, and he says that, that, that will be expressed through one who truly holds the power of my servant, the one whom I have chosen. Interestingly, Psalm 2 is a rather popular psalm for the New Testament writers. When they're trying to make sense of Jesus, uh, they often lean on uh, the language of Psalm 2, what we've read this morning. We see it in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John released from prison, and, and they're with believers, and they're, they're, they're making sense, trying to explain what's happened, and they pick up this language. The nations are raging. Leaders are attacking God's purposes, and they name them like Pilate and others. I mean, Peter and John named them. So they pick up the language of, of Psalm to understand, uh, yes, the nations rage, but God has affirmed his hold on the world in the person and work of Jesus, they say. He has vindicated uh, his plan, his purposes, his power in the world through the resurrection of Jesus, even though the nation sought to extinguish him, put him out. Peter and John pull us back to this prayer. Later in Acts chapter 13, uh, we hear the language of this prayer again. Uh, you know, they bring good news. They write, God has promised to the fathers. He's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as it's written in the Psalms. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, using a leaning on Psalm 2 to understand what they see and experience in the person of Jesus. So the nations are raging out of control. Uh, the psalm, this prayer affirms that even in the midst of all that, God somehow holds all of it and that his expression of that hold on the world is seen in the work of the one he has chosen, we now know to be Jesus. And then where? Do we land? We move to the last stanza of the psalm. Now, therefore, so he addresses all those raging nations and their leaders. He addresses them. O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. We read a passage like this. You're like, man, what? I don't know. 
what, what, what relevance does this have for my daily life, right? What's it mean for me to pray and consider the wrath of God? But I think when we, when, when we hear it in the context of a world broken where uh, nations rage, we understand that the evil in the world uh, needs the work of one who holds the power and who is good. And we, we find that expression here, an invitation to response, to acknowledge uh, that God is the one at the center and that the work of the one whom he has chosen is the expression of his work and will for the world. And will we, will the nations, will the world bend the knee to this plan versus all of their scheming and planning themselves? Uh, I, uh, I, I think... Um, I think this psalm is, is helpful. Um, man, I, I think it expresses attention. We feel maybe as you have read headlines this week, we can feel this tension in the psalm. We begin with the admission, the world is under his control and yet the nations are raging. And then we end with this invitation of, of submitting to his rule, but it still seems unresolved. And, and that feeling we carry still, you and me, when we pray. But yet the psalm ends with this sort of resplendent promise that God's clear purposes in a world full of chaos and strife will be expressed through one man, his son, and and that through him uh, we, we find the promise of the last verse, blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. Blessed are all of those who take refuge in in him the the powers of this world still are conspiring still maneuvering and God affirms that he is sovereign over the earth and that he remains the refuge I uh I said we would we would end at the beginning this is that moment He's like, oh, yeah, you're like, yeah, no, not really. But this is that moment. We come to the end of the psalm, but, but the, interestingly, the end of this particular psalm actually takes us back to the beginning of Psalm 1. Right? So this is how Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But, but listen to that, how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. I, I don't think this is incidental. Right, that as they uh, put together the prayer book of the people of God would, would be the prayer book of God's people through history, of the New Testament church, of Jesus himself. He would lean on the Psalms for prayer. Uh, that as they sort of collect these Psalms and prayers, they put at the, at, the, at the front of this collection, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Blessed is the man, the person. Blessed is the person who, who walks in the counsel of God. And then blessed are all who take refuge in him. And, and, and we have here, right, with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, this sort of expansive view of the world, that, that it moves in Psalm 1, God is at the center of all that is personal. Blessed is the one who would, who would sort of make him the center of his life and, and he would flourish as a tree, but then it shifts to, from the personal to the very public uh, movement of Psalm 2, the nations raging. Right, it moves from the self. We, we tend to think of the Psalms as this sort of personal space, my personal piety, me and Jesus, and I'm going to pray. And, and that's there. That's here in Psalm 1. But, but we can't stay there. It moves us immediately into Psalm 2 that, that, that this life of prayer has implications for our own hearts, but it also has implications for, uh, for the, the world. 
right? Not just the personal, but the public as well. Not just the self, but society as well. That, that God is a refuge in both of those places. Which raises the question, well, what's this mean for how we pray? Now, what are you asking us to pray for this week? Well, I want to make two observations. I think the first is that this sort of holding these two psalms together, that God's at work in the nations, but also in the personal and how we live and walk, our individual steps, but also the steps of of the systems of the world. Uh, I think it pulls us into the truth that God is at the pivotal center of all of it. That everything in life, everything in our experience of the world, personal, but but even sort of uh, global, right, on, on the grand scale, that all of these things in the Psalms are, are determined, are illuminated uh, in their relationship to God. I think sometimes we sort of relegate faith to kind of just the personal, it's just the Sunday thing, all these kinds of things maybe we tend to focus on, but, but Psalms, the prayers of the Psalms pull us into this really broad view of the world, that God is at the center of my own individual steps, but also of the movements of the world, that he holds all of those things, both of those things. I think I've referenced her work before. Uh, I believe she's an Anglican priest. Her name is Tish Warren uh, Harrison. And uh, she's written a uh, a beautiful little book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, just sort of the daily life and and God's, uh, what's it look like sort of in those ordinary spaces. But a a newer one, she's written about prayer. Talk about prayer in the night and um, reflecting on prayer. She makes this observation and says it better than I could. So I'll share it with you kind of in her own season of raging and and, and sort of personal uh, night Uh, she says that in those moments, in in an attempt to pray, looking for language and words, she said, I was reaching for a reality that was larger and more enduring than what I felt in the moment. And I think the Psalms give us the the language they pull us into when when we sort of come to the end of our words or the end of our feelings or when our feelings are are legit, but but, but don't sort of get us um, there The Psalms pull us into a deeper truth that God holds the world, the personal and the public, right? We hear this affirmation in God's laughter, right? That it has implications for you and me, that God is calm in the midst of all the world's scheming. And when we start there, when we we rest there, it has an effect on us as well. That we have good cause not, uh, not to be anxious, to be calm and even joyful, the psalm will land in Psalm 2, even joyful. I, I, I think that's one place to start, that, that praying things like Psalm 2 that maybe we don't think of often pulls us into the truth that God is at the center of my life and of the world. All of it finds its definition around him. Even in all its raging brokenness, he is at work. He holds all of that. But I'll make one other observation. I was sharing with someone recently. I I don't know, maybe you're like me. Hopefully you're not. Uh, But sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I think prayer is just like a euphemism for worry in my life, right? You know, you just like, maybe I say it out loud. It's probably always running internally. I'm like, I call it prayer, but I'm really just anxious and worried about something. And that's okay, right? There is space. Like, I I think that's okay. Jesus invites us into that. But I I think sometimes I have kind of thought about the Psalms as like, well, which this is true, but they're just helpful because they sort of give expression to that full range of human emotion. So all of that, can, I can situate it here in the Psalms and, and, and it helps me. Uh, but uh, I, was, I was challenged this week as I was thinking about this morning. 
you guys are familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yep. Uh, resisted the Nazi regime, executed, and uh, lived a dynamic and, and powerful expression of the Christian faith. Uh, but he has, a, he has a, just a, a short little collection of writings on the Psalms. And uh, he, he says, uh, he, he used this image that I thought was really interesting. He's like, how do, how do we learn to speak? Right? How do, some of you guys have babies, got little ones running around. Some of you guys are in, uh, planning on them. Some of you enjoy sort of uh, hanging out with others and then leaving them to, uh, you know, let the, the parents take care of all the hard work or uh, grandparents, you know, here's looking at you, right? Like, um, how do children, how do they learn to speak? Well, they don't learn to speak because we sit down with them and go over all the syntax and grammar and uh, sentence diagramming, right, of like, well, this is how English works. That will come. They learn to speak by being spoken to. Right, that Bonhoeffer says that, that they learn speech from their family. Right, the parents, their father, their mother, they, they speak to them, and, and, and through this sort of like, uh, they just begin to imbibe that speech, and it, it begins to find its way out. And he, he suggests maybe prayer is kind of like that, that we learn to speak in prayer because we have first been spoken to. That the, the, the Psalms are that kind of speaking to for us. And so it gives us words so we can say his words back to him, just like infants learn how to speak with, the, with their parents. And see, sometimes he's, you know, he makes an observation. We kind, of, we kind of limit prayer to just kind of the expression of my emotion. And Psalms does that, and we need that. But he says to stop there is to stop short. That the, the Psalms aren't just about sort of me uh, uh, adequately expressing expressing whatever I may feel in my heart at the moment. True and good and necessary, but, but that's not really the whole story. In fact, he says, sometimes it's necessary to pray uh, what is contrary to our hearts. Right? That if, that if it's just left up to sort of how our hearts feel, he, he, he said, we'll never move past uh, the fourth, the only petition we'd ever pray would be the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Right? If, if we just sort of live with our feelings, that uh, the but he says the Psalms are like the language of God, a parent to a child, given to us to shape how we speak, how we pray. That, that in them, we are given a richness of the word of God that moves us out of the poverty of our own hearts and places us in the deeper truth that God is at work in the world. And that I can bring all of, all of this that I feel uh, into the language of the Psalms. And there, in the very words of God, I'm given all of those emotions, those feelings, all of those extremities in my heart, find context in a deeper, bigger, broader truth that God is at work in the world. It's in this way that I think prayer is a gift, a gracious gift that we find in the song. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.